Hello everyone, and welcome to the Grace Nerd Podcast. My name's Eric, and I like to talk about theology and the Christian life. This podcast aims to break down Christian theology in an understandable way, and comment on various aspects of culture from a Christian worldview. You can experience this podcast in video form on YouTube by entering Grace Nerd into the search bar. I hope you'll subscribe so you get notified when new podcasts are released. Thanks for joining me. My first set of episodes here on the audio podcast side of things have been extracted from their YouTube videos after the fact. In video form, texts like Bible verses are displayed on screen, therefore, in the early episodes of the podcast, you won't necessarily hear me say things like quote, end quote, or cite scriptures from chapter and verse. You'll hear this change once the audio podcast has caught up with the YouTube channel, and I'll be taking both viewers and listeners into consideration. Just wanted to put that out there for clarification. While I'm playing catch up here on the podcast side of things, you'll likely see new podcasts every day. Once we're caught up, you'll see new podcasts every week alongside the YouTube channel releases. One other brief note, I'm on the fence about whether the background music is working well for YouTube videos, and I'm even less convinced it will work great for the audio versions. So apart from strong feedback to the contrary, you may see it go away once the two formats are in sync. Anyway, enough intro, let's get started. Hello everybody and welcome back to Grace Nerd. In this video I'm going to talk about 10 principles that I believe can help us to grow in our understanding and our passion for theology. So hopefully you'll join me, we're going to start walking right through them. So number one, I think that it's important that we embrace a solid reference point for theology. And what do I mean by that? What we need is something that we can stand on to even begin to do theology, or what many would call systematic theology. And the only reference point we really can point to is Scripture. Now the reason I say that actually is to encourage you to embrace what I would hold to, which is the doctrine of the inerrancy of Scripture. Really, there's only two ways that you can embrace scripture. You either embrace it as something that you are able to filter, or you embrace it as something that ultimately filters you and your thoughts about God and about theology. Ultimately, if scripture is at bottom something that we can filter, then ultimately we're going to have to come to scripture with a fixed set of ideas about what's acceptable theologically and what's not acceptable, or what makes us comfortable, what ma what makes us uncomfortable. And therefore, there's going to be limits on where scripture can take us in revealing truths about God and what he's like and what he does. One of the ways that I saw this play out was when I was in college. It's interesting, there is one Christian thinker that I've listened to where he talked about the idea that if we reject the inerrancy of scripture, then ultimately uh, theology is ulti ultimately going to be a, a study of history. And I sort of understood what he meant and I embraced it sort of as uh, an explanation of sort of a mood or way of functioning that people would have as they approach scripture. But I didn't really think of it as something that people would say when they reject the inerrancy of scripture. But this is actually the very thing that a Greek professor I had said when he rejected the inerrancy of scripture. He said, systematic theology is something that should be pushed into the history department and only the history department. And the reason he said that, if you think about it, is that he rejected the inerrancy of scripture. Therefore, he saw it as having contradictions with itself and inconsistencies. 
and therefore it, in his words, resisted systematizing. And that might sound nice and poetic and, you know, organic when you look at scripture, but ultimately what you're saying is that God's words contradict themselves. And even though God is, you know, perfect, he's able to say things that don't line up with each other. And therefore, when we look back at history, we see people coming up with different understandings of God and different theologies. And ultimately, we can't say that any of them was definitely right or wrong because scripture must have contradicted itself. Therefore, we can only ever really look back at church history and look back at different Christian ideas, but we can never really, you know, stand here and now and say, this is what we ought to believe. Thus saith the Lord. And so basically, there you have it. In summary, it's important that we begin with a solid reference point in order to do theology. And that, again, is scripture, the inerrant scripture. Number two, I don't think it goes quite far enough to simply embrace scripture. We have to see scripture as having the central point that it says that it has. Jesus said to the Pharisees in the New Testament that they searched the scriptures and in them they thought they had eternal life, but ultimately those scriptures pointed to Christ. And so, therefore, we ought to embrace Christ, his person and his work, the gospel, as central to scripture. All of scripture, all of prophecy, all of the laws point to our need for Christ. And once we see this, it protects us from a few different things. It, it protects us from the legalism that Jesus condemned in the Pharisees. It points us away from self-righteousness as we read through, for instance, the laws of the Old Testament. We can see God's moral character there, but ultimately what it points to is our need for Christ because our, of our failure to keep the law. It shows us that the, uh, the prophets were ultimately pointing to Christ and that all of this history of Israel throughout the Old Testament has a direction that it's pointing. Again, this, this doctrine of seeing Christ at the center of Scripture, it really it guides us and it centers us and it gives us direction as we pursue biblical truth and we pursue theological understanding. What it also does is it protects us from the temptation to seek information for information's sake. Ultimately, theology should lead us to worship. It should lead us to a greater understanding of God and therefore a greater love for God. That's the ultimate purpose. Thirdly, I think uh, an important principle is to see that God never reveals any truth for nothing. All truth that God reveals has purpose. And uh, this reminds me of a professor that I had where we had different theological disagreements, but there was one interesting thing he said that really stood out to me and has kind of stayed with me. He basically pointed out that we can kind of think of God almost as uh, the ultimate pastor in some sense. He's like the pastor of the universe, you might say. And therefore, every truth that he reveals to us is going to be a pastoral truth. And oftentimes I find that pastors want to go for uh, what they see as a quote-unquote pastoral answer to a theological question that someone gives. And they look for the pastoral application before they look for the actual objective truth of the claim that they're making. So let me give you an example of this. Uh, I remember there was this uh, one pastor who had given into an error that is called open theism. Basically, this is a rejection of the traditional doctrine of omniscience, that God knows everything, past, present, and future. And basically, this was arrived at by different theologians because they would look at the idea of human choices and they would say that you can't really make a real true choice if God foresees what your choices are going to be because you can't do other than what he knows. It's sort of this logical deduction that leads you to reject this 
uh, traditional doctrine of God's knowledge. But I find that there's not just supposedly logical reasons that people come to errors like this, but there's also uh, supposedly pastoral reasons. And so there was this one pastor that he had a woman in his congregation come whose husband had been unfaithful to her. And they were planning on going to the mission field together. And she had felt that God had spoken to her and told her to be with this man. And again, he just went off multiple times and was unfaithful to her and to the point that their marriage fell apart. And she basically said to the pastor, I can't believe this happened. I thought that God spoke to us. And if God didn't tell me to do this, then there's no way that God speaks to people. And the pastor's pastoral response was, yes, actually, God feels just the way that you do. He was just as surprised as you when this happened. He did tell you to get married. He did put you together. But ultimately, he didn't see this coming. And so he's grieved with you and he's going to walk with you through this to put your life back together. And you can see the pastoral sort of intention behind this and that he was trying to make this woman feel closer to God and that God was feeling the same emotions as her. God was wounded like she was wounded and God experienced pain like she experienced pain. And sort of he wanted to create this intimacy with God for her. But ultimately, in order to be pastoral, he rejected an objective theological truth. Ultimately, my main point here is first seek out the objective truth of a thing through scripture before you seek out the pastoral application, because if it is true what you're saying, it's going to inevitably have that pastoral application. It just might not come exactly the way you instinctively want to get there. Ultimately, the doctrine of God's omniscience is going to be a pastoral truth, and that's just one example. Number four, I think that a principle that's important is that we look back at history and get an idea of the context in which different theological truths were clarified and the conflicts that sort of brought that about. So, for example, um, there is a, a heresy from the early church known as Arianism. And this was basically a teaching that Christ was seen as a subordinate being to God. He was like the first creation of God was the basic idea. And there was a time, according to Arius, when Christ did not exist. And ultimately, this is called subordinationism. And it was in the midst of conflicts like this that different formulations uh, and ways of explaining the doctrine of the Trinity came about in ways that were much more clear and much more crystallized. And you'll find this to be the case in all kinds of doctrines, the doctrine of the atonement, the doctrine of, of Christ's humanity and his deity uh, together, and uh, hypostatic union is what that's called, and how that became clarified. You see these kind of conflicts and clarifications throughout history, and sort of knowing the context in which these things came about can really help to sort of give these doctrines priority in your own thinking, and sort of show you the way in which things can go can go askew, and the way that you can fall into error if you don't uh, study th these things more fully and study scripture more fully. It also gives you just a better understanding of the importance of sound doctrine because you can see how things can get thrown out of whack and how it's happened in history and how it can happen now. And that brings us to the next principle, which is use the theological conflicts in your own life to spur you on to greater curiosity. There were times in my life where people would sort of try to downplay the importance of theology. I was a little more curious than many in my life as I began to study deeper topics and people would sort of talk as if I would somehow mature out of that and no longer see the importance for it eventually. But it really only made me more curious and it spurred me along because I saw that there were leaders in the church who made it a priority and I saw that the health that it brought to those that they taught, the health in their churches 
and the strength that it gave people in their faith, sort of that, that internal conflict I felt really pushed me toward a greater understanding. And not only that, but I saw different teachers that I was following uh, fall into error. And I would try to explain it to people and sort of show like where this had happened in church history before and where the root causes were. You know, I, I would see very popular teachers fall into error and people who didn't care about theology as much as me disagreed with them too, but they didn't have an interpretation of what was happening. And because I fully engaged with this conflict in myself and with what I was seeing, it really gave uh, gave me helpful insights. There's a way that you can allow conflict to make you angry or cause cause you to have a more destructive attitude, but it can also spur you on to a more productive curiosity in a way that can help you to interpret these situations for yourself and for others. Principle number six is very simple. Read more dead people. All that I really mean by that is that you reach back into history and start to read people who lived before you and have died before you were born. It's really important that everyone realize that history did not begin when you were born. I find it really helpful to look back and to read the people that my teachers stand on the shoulders of. So for example, somebody who has been an influence on me in the past is a very popular teacher, Pastor John Piper, and he took me uh, pretty pretty far in certain areas of theological understanding, but then he would go and point to someone like Jonathan Edwards. And, you know, I would think of different theological conundrums or, you know, uh, be stuck where I'd hear a doctrine and I didn't really want to agree with it and I would come up with all kinds of objections to it. And then I would read Jonathan Edwards and he would explain the doctrine and then he would not only answer the questions I had, but then he would answer questions about objections that I didn't even make, that I didn't even think to make. And what you realize as you read back is that if you're thinking of certain theological conflicts in your head that you've come up with uh, or objections that you have or questions that you have, you're probably not the first one. And the people who addressed that issue in the past probably addressed it even more deeply than you're even attempting to. And so, you know, re reading people from history can be a very humbling experience because uh, you realize you weren't as smart as you thought you were and you realize that there's always more that you can learn. And this leads to principle number seven, which is don't allow theological conflict to stir up pride in your heart. There are going to be times if you make theology a priority where you're going to surpass different people in different areas about different topics of doctrine. And it's easy to start thinking of yourself, you know, as the smartest person in the room. And in some cases about certain topics, maybe that's kind of true. But ultimately, that doesn't give you any excuse to, to be condescending to others or to condemn people who haven't uh, grown in a certain area of understanding or people who simply have a, a disagreement with you. Even if you have greater understanding in, a, in an area, it doesn't mean that you have greater maturity than another person. It's very possible to have very correct doctrine, but very immature attitudes. Putting yourself before God as you study theology and asking him to give you a humble attitude and to guide you, that's very, very important in this pursuit. And this leads to number eight, and that principle is go to church. This is a very clear teaching in scripture. We're not to abandon the gathering of the saints together. And uh, I think one of the reasons God does this is so that those who are passionate about these things, again, don't become prideful. Like I said before, that just because you have a, a, a great theological understanding of a given topic or maybe several topics, it doesn't make you more mature than others who might not have that understanding. So for instance, I have a master's degree in theology. I'm the only one in my church who does. Those who are in leadership don't necessarily have that level of theological education, but that doesn't mean that I have the same ministry experience as them. That doesn't mean that I have more maturity than them. It doesn't mean that I govern my household as maturely as them. 
and I have things to learn from all kinds of families and all kinds of older saints in the faith, even younger saints in the faith, even same age saints in the faith who have families and who have life experiences. There's always something that you can learn from someone. And not only that, but you might, even if you think you know a lot of things theologically, you never know how much theology every, everybody understands in the church. And you may have missed something. And oftentimes in your pride, you might go off and correct someone. And it turns out you actually had it wrong, even though you studied certain books that other people hadn't studied. Someone else may have done just a little more work than you and you didn't realize it. And oftentimes there's people who they go and they study theology and that leads them to a place where they can never find a church that's quite perfect enough for them theologically. And that's not an attitude that gives you an excuse to not go to church. Ultimately, God ordained that we gather together and he didn't overlook someone like you who's passionate about theology. That applies to you too. And whatever level of understanding you come to, there's maturity that other saints are going to have to offer you, and there's going to be theological understanding that other saints are going to have to offer you. So number nine, make sure that you define humility biblically and you strive for that. So oftentimes when we want to share the truth of God or we want to share a difficult truth about what's sin and what's not, or we want to help other people grow in their understanding this can often lead to people wrongly accusing us of, the, of being arrogant. So I just talked about ways that we might actually become prideful, but there are oftentimes false accusations of being prideful where we're simply trying to love God's truth and we're trying to communicate God's truth, but people experience even that right attitude as pride because they're perhaps trying to resist a certain truth of God. It's important that while we should remain kind and we should perhaps time these kind of conversations rightly, we shouldn't allow an accusation of pride to immediately take root in our hearts, particularly if we're attempting to submit ourselves to the word of God. And that ultimately is what the true biblical definition of pride is. It's when we take the word of God, we take a command of God, we take something God has said, and we try to put ourselves above it. And oftentimes when we pursue a worldly view of humility, where we don't speak too confidently what the truth of God is, and we simply apologize for the truth and simply quiet down and avoid a topic. Often what we're doing in that case is we're putting ourselves above the word of God and not speaking it or changing it. And while that can be done in the name of humility, it actually turns out to be another form of pride. And so when we don't treat the word of God rightly, it actually reverses what pride and humility are. So again, in summary, make sure that you define humility rightly and pursue that. And then finally, number 10 is actually two things. One, know that when it comes to the most important aspects of theological knowledge, if you have embraced Christ and you, had, and you have embraced the gospel, then you have, in a sense, already arrived when it comes to the most important aspects of understanding. But on the other hand, number two, you'll never arrive when it comes to fully understanding God. And so one, there should be a peace and a rest in that we know what we truly need to know if we know Christ. Ultimately, he has covered our shortcomings, he's covered our sins, and he's covered our misunderstandings. And in the gospel, we are perfect in him. And that frees us to know that we don't know everything. Number two, we don't know everything about God and we never will because we never will be God. But we know what we need to know. And so take comfort in that and also be free to continue to pursue theology with the knowledge of that. And so thanks for watching. I hope you enjoyed this video. I hope you found it helpful. Make sure that you leave a like and subscribe if you enjoyed yourself and would like to see more videos like this in the future. I'm thinking next time around, I'm going to point out sort of the polar opposite of this. I'm going to talk about possibly 10 ways not to grow theologically. So look forward to that. Make sure you comment below about 
uh, possible questions you'd like to hear talked about or things that you enjoyed in this video. And we'll see you around in the next one. Thanks for watching. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. Again, make sure you subscribe to the podcast so that you can be notified of new episodes. And check out the Grace Nerd YouTube channel so you can experience the content in video form. And by the way, if you're a Christian who likes gaming, I have a gaming channel on YouTube as well called Crossplay Gaming. I stream multiple times a week and do a mixture of unboxings, game commentary, and other nerdy entertainment-related things as well. Simply search youtube.com slash crossplaygamingtv. See you next time.